versus West. Let's take a look at the Eastern Conference on the podcast. As the Jazz are on a road trip, they're 3-0. We'll review that. And Megan McPeak, Wizards analyst, joins us to preview Saturday's matchup against the Jazz. This is Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz and MLS 3112 Equal Housing Lender. Should I get into the Rudy Gobert discourse? Is it worth it? Do you want to? Okay, just quick. As I want to get to Megan McPeak, she gives insight on the Eastern Conference as the Jazz will be taking on Eastern Conference teams. Frankly, we don't check in on the East as much on this podcast, so I wanted to get a little bit of a flavor of what's happening out there in the landscape of the entire league. We'll get back to the West on, on Monday, so don't worry about that. But the Rudy Gobert discourse. I mean, I just, I don't know. I feel like James Franco in the ballad of Buster Scruggs. First time. <laughs> this is the first time where we have to do this, where we have to do Player X said this thing about Rudy Gobert, run over scurrying. Hey, Rudy, what do you think about Player X saying this about you? And then we do the, the cycle. It truly, and I cannot overstate this enough, does not matter. You watch the games. You watch them so intently that you're listening to a jazz podcast right now. You get the Rudy Gobert effect. Some people are just haters. They're just hateration. That's all it is. What Pat Bev and Anthony Edwards are doing. Just hating. He's seen the validation. Rudy knows the validation from his team. Seen it from the league. Defensive player of the year. Three times. The man is dominating. And it's it's interesting timing that Pat Bev, Anthony Edwards say this. And whatever about those guys. I mean, Anthony Edwards, the knock on him pre-draft was that he's a football guy playing basketball and well that's a football observation to say that someone other than Rudy Gobert affects you when you're going to the rim sorry football observation and then Pat Bev tricked y'all Rudy Gobert interesting timing that they say it though because Sunday I mean the clip was going around about him defending three actions one defensive possession he's playing absurdly right now and Sunday that was a master class Andy picked up on it. It went crazy on Twitter. He's defending Darius Garland, driving to the rim on the perimeter, blocks his shot away, blocks his lob when he goes up again. He's playing at a a really high level right now, and he's getting the better of Cat. He's getting the better of Embiid. And take the Embiid one with the, the postscript coming back from COVID on an incomplete team. They don't have Ben Simmons. But he's playing at a high level. And we did this with Kevin O'Connor at the beginning of the year. KOC talked about to be good is to be hated. They've been around this league. Kevin Durant, he's pretty good. I think so. He has a lot of haters. Nothing gets 100% consensus. And that's why I find it fascinating, the reaction. Why does Rudy Gobert get all this hate? It's because he's elite. And in the NBA, unfortunately, if you're good, you're going to have haters. I mean, James Harden, he's pretty good. Does everybody like his style of play? LeBron? Russ? Russ is the most polarizing of players in the NBA. To be good is to have your detractors. And that's the burden of being very, very good at your job. He gets validation through the awards, and he gets validation through the contract that he received. 
and getting all NBA nods. That's the validation that you should look for. I'll take this from another angle. You know, there was somebody who I went to school with who we would watch YouTube clips of basketball when we were done with work and sometimes even when we still had work to do. All class. And we'd just look at highlights. And I'd come in some days into class and I'd say, hey, did you catch the game last night? No, 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 no. But I caught the YouTube. Want to watch the highlights right now? And yes, I would watch the, the highlights. But fast forward to like last year around All-Star time, I see his tweet come across the timeline as I do my daily scroll. And he posts a side-by-side of Devin Booker's points per game and Rudy's points per game with the queasy emoji above it as the caption. And to me, it just says, oh, so you're just watching highlights. You're not consuming this game beyond the box score. You're catching House of Highlights, and that's it. And for me, that's fine. Okay, I'm glad that we can have both of us in the big tent of loving basketball and appreciating the sport, but it doesn't mean I have to take that opinion heavily in my debates. Okay, it's just surface level. To watch Rudy, you have to have nuance. You have to, above all else, actually watch games. And then you can appreciate what he does. No, it's not going to be points per game. And to compare Gobert and Booker, this doesn't make sense. And I only use him as an example because he has a big Twitter account due to his reporting duties on the entertainment side. But he loves hoops. And I appreciate that he likes hoops. Doesn't mean that he appreciates all aspects of the game. That's unfortunate, but you gotta move on. First time. Nothing gets consensus. If I put a Twitter poll out right now, is Succession having a great season? That's not gonna be 100%, even though it should. Are puppies adorable? That's not gonna be 100%. Nothing gets consensus, and to be good is to have the haters. I'll leave it this as a stat that Kirk Goldsberry had at the end of last month. Just to put a period on the Rudy Gobert discourse, whether he actually does thing in the game. Because I'm pretty sure it encompasses what he does. Rudy Gobert this season. This was tweeted also on November 29th. Rudy Gobert this season. He has defended the most shots in the NBA, 370, and has allowed the lowest effective field goal percentage, 40.3. He is the best shot defender in the NBA. To me... That's the opinion that matters. And those are the stats that matter. Continuing. Last night, they get the win against the Sixers. Was it the best game that the Jazz have played all year? I don't think so. I think the award should go to the one against the Blazers. But I understand why last night many were impressed. Eight in double figures. Donovan is scorching. The guy had a four-game streak where he's going over 30, shooting 43% from three. And it's not just the scoring, it's the passing as well. His profile of passes are getting to a stronger and stronger level to where you can really rely on him as a first playmaker, take off those training reels, start doing it. His baseball passes on the baseline, the pick last night against Philly, and then he's leading them out in transition. Hassan Whiteside is running the floor, and Donovan spots him. No look pass, Hassan Whiteside too. That, combined with Rudy playing at a stellar level, that can carry a team very far. And it lifts everybody else's performance to the degree that they're hitting 
their shots. Three games, 20-plus three-pointers, first team in NBA history. You do that in the playoff series, spot in a 3-0 lead. Just one game to win. The better and better they play right now, they're closing that gap. They're starting to close that gap on the Suns and the Warriors at the top of the conference. But they're doing it quietly. And the other thing that's helped Donovan scoring, Andy picked up on this in his triple team, getting to the rim more. And he's shooting at a rim a better mark. The Jazz as a whole are shooting in the paint better. And as they have that outside game with the inside game, the shot profile is nice, and they have the number one offense in the league. So it's starting to look a lot like what the Jazz did last season. I get it if you saw last night and you said, oh, that looks more closer to the Jazz. They're starting to hit their stride. That's the best one of the year. Yes, okay, understood. I also factor in that the Sixers were 10 games of 12, had been on the road. They were just getting back home. It was second game of back-to-back for them as well. They looked pretty listless, and in the second half, the Jazz just blew them away. Third quarter on, they turned into that team from last year and showed it out. And I don't know if they, they were like as equal of, of competitors as the Jazz. Like I, I don't rate Philly in the contenders tier this year. I just don't. I was more impressed by Portland because that team clearly did not have a chance against Utah last week. Which leads me to a game I want to play on the podcast called Monitor This. Over the next couple weeks, you're going to want to monitor this because the unofficial start of the trade season, it occurs on December 15th when more contracts come onto the books that can be traded. So you're going to see more transactions occur. That's next week. So you're going to want to monitor some of these things. First thing, monitor this. The Showtime Lakers series trailer that came out, HBO Max, Adam McKay. Yeah, it looks amazing. John C. Riley as Jerry Buss. He looks like a carbon copy. And Adrian Brody, not only being in succession, but also this series as Pat Riley. I can't wait. And it's going to happen next spring when the Lakers are fighting for the sixth seed or something. I don't know. It'll be a nice pair between those two. Monitor this. Portland. Got to monitor that. All the talk that's happening this week. What are they going to do with Dame? I think ultimately you have to monitor because they have an entirely new regime in there. No more Terry Stotts from last season. Chauncey Billups is in. And they fired Neil Olshay last week. Their president of the team is gone, and Chris McGowan. It's an entirely new regime. So I want to monitor, does Joe Cronin, the interim GM, have the juice to make a big move? Does he have the capital with ownership to say, okay, we're going to rebuild We're going to get rid of Dame. Or is it going to be that other option that they have? Stick with Dame and make moves around CJ. Whatever that happens there, especially if it goes to a Western Conference team, it can change the balance of power in the league. And then monitor this, Indiana. That team can also change the Western Conference playoff race. I'm not the first one to look at the trade machine to see Sabonis on the Warriors, but that one's been floated around. Sabonis, Turner, Karis LeVert appear to be on the way out because they've signed off on rebuilding according to The Athletic. And since you've been watching the Jazz and since you pay attention, you know those are useful NBA players. 
So monitor that. We might turn this into a Utah Jazz podcast. Podcast brought to you by Fanatics. For authentic Utah Jazz gear, including jerseys, shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanatics.com slash used. That's fanatics.com slash used. You know the drill. Five stars, nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. I want you to hear from Megan McPeak. She's Wizards analyst, does radio for the club. We looked around the Eastern Conference and previewed Saturday's game. And I want to do it now as things are starting to even up in East and West records. I think the East has a like one, two game. It's a slim advantage right now. But of the top 15 records, they have nine of the top 15, if you put it regardless of conference. Just a, a quick check-in on the East. Don't worry, we'll be back to talking about the West on Monday. Megan McPeak, find her on Twitter. Thank you for coming on the show. And enjoy our conversation as we talk Wizards and the rest of that conference. I think it's a mixture of a few different things. One, you have a new coach in Wes Unsell Jr., a new coaching staff that he's brought in. Um, some have stayed from the previous coaching regime, and he also has brought in his own his own guys too. So I think that is one factor. Another factor is the offense and defensive system that he's now running. That is obviously a change from the previous coaching regime and what he wants to do in implementing everything that he feels is right for this team and, and the roster that he has. And then the third thing is the roster. You have a overhaul of players who have come in with that Russell Westbrook trade. You get a guy like Kyle Kuzma, who unfortunately Laker fans wrote off, and he's now proving that he just needed time and um, consistent minutes to be able to be put in the right system. I think when it comes to a player like Kuz, he needs the system. Some players need specific systems that work with the way that they play the game. And I think the system that Coach Unseld is running works to what Kyle Kuzma can do. And then you also add in a guy like Montrez, whose motor, I don't know how, like, I think he has a better motor than the Energizer Bunny. Like, I'm being honest. Like, the way that he just consistently keeps going, no matter what happens, plays through foul trouble, plays through not getting calls in his favor, plays through, you know, not having big, uh, scoring outputs but impacts the game in other ways like he's always just going and that has trickled down throughout the rest of the team you add in a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie you add in a guy that can just have the ball in his hands which takes it out of the hands of Bradley Beal because I think that was a big factor in previous seasons for 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 Brad is the fact that when you have the ball in your hands as much as he did you're always playmaking. You're not just playmaking for yourself, you're playmaking for the rest of your team. And then you never really get a break because then he was also expected to guard either the first or second best perimeter guy on the opposing team. So when does Brad get a break? Now you enter in Spencer Dinwiddie, the ball's in his hand a little bit more and it's out of Brad's hand. And now you can see what Brad can do off the ball that we saw in glimpses of in the previous couple seasons, but not on a consistent basis like what we're seeing. So I think it's a multitude of different things, but those are probably the three biggest things for me, coaching change, system change, and roster changes. You put all of that around, you know, arguably the franchise player in Bradley Beal right now, 
and you're seeing the success that they're having. Yes, they've had a little bit of a bump in the road, but at the end of the day, JP, you know this is a long season. 82 games is not short. It's a long season. Every team is going to go through bumps and bruises, and right now that's the stretch that the Wizards are facing. 15-11 and 11 so far, 8-3 and three at home. What are those changes, head coaching-wise, schematically, that the Wizards have undergone? I think just the way that they play, it's more of a free-flowing offense within offensive sets, if that makes sense. So you look at like game film for them and the way that they play, you can tell they're running offensive sets and offensive schemes, but they also have the ability that because you have the talent that they have and guys who have basketball IQs that can recognize that, you know, okay, we're running this set, but something's not working. Let me figure it out and try and make a play. You have that. And I feel like that's worked to their advantage. They like to get out in transition. As we've seen, you see how effective Daniel Gafford is in a pick and roll. And you're not just seeing with Bradley Beal, you're seeing him in a pick and roll with Spencer Dinwiddie. You see it with Hal Neto. You see it even sometimes him and Montrez have been able to kind of figure out how to play a two big man game together. And I think the most underrated part of Montrez's game is his passing ability. He has one of the best passing abilities for a big man that I've seen in a long time. I would put him up there with a Kevin Love in the way that he just sees the floor. Like there was an instance against Detroit that he made such a beautiful backdoor cut. Uh, He made a beautiful backdoor pass, excuse me. And it it was timed properly. It was on the mark and on the money. And he put it exactly where it needed to be in order for a player to go up and make a layup. So you, you don't really talk about Montrez's passing ability. And I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for his ability to pass. And within the system that Coach Unseld is doing, when you have guys who have basketball IQ the way that they do, it takes some of the pressure off of having to always be in a set and run an offense and, and run what you want to run. And when a play breaks down, you have guys that can figure out what they need to do to get to, to get a score, to get the ball inside or to get maybe to the free throw line. So I think that's a big factor in, in why you're seeing the success, but it also too, you need the roster and the players to be able to, to run what you want to run. How has that depth helped? Because it's almost a hockey line substitution. When you have the Russell Westbrook trade, it's one for all of the Lakers depth. We've seen how it's affected that team to where Washington had flourished early on in the season. Yeah, I think it's so interesting when you essentially, when you think about it, with the exception of Gaff, you really have five guys who can almost interchangeably just play like one through five, essentially. You don't really have to play position basketball with the exception of Gaff, as I mentioned, but because they can all play off of each other and kind of play with free flowing offense, you don't have to have your typical one through five set. And when you bring those guys over, you have KCP, who is a fantastic shooter, goes through up and down, you know, kind of slumps, if you will. You have Dinwiddie, who can play with the ball in his hand, which allows Brad to play off the ball, as I mentioned. And then you have Gaff, who's so athletic in a pick and roll situation that when you put him in a pick and roll, essentially with any of those four, you have to not only respect Gaff and his ability to roll to the hoop, and his athleticism to go above the rim and catch a lob, which we see a lot of and have seen a lot of in this stretch. But you then also have to keep in mind, okay, who's he going pick and roll with? Is it KCP? Because he can knock down that shot. Is it Spencer? Oh, he can knock down that shot, but also too, I need to respect his drive. 
Is it Beal? Because again, like Spencer, he can knock down that shot, but he also can put it on the floor. Um, And I think it's so dangerous that it allows everyone to play within themselves, but also play with each other. So it's so interesting that they've got off to this hot start because of the depth, because you can just bring guys in. You can get them two, three, four minute stretches, get them on the bench, give, you know, Montrez a blow and, and, and then go and then get in, the next guy in. And the bench has been so effective for them too. You think of Howell Neto coming in off the bench and just the way he plays the game. I love how he plays so much because it's almost like he looks to be a disruptor. He looks to create contact. He wants you to make contact with him. Like he thrives off of bouncing off of people to get to the hoop kind of thing. Then you have a guy like Denny Avia who offensively, is he struggling? Yes. It's, it's, it's been evident. He has his moments where he has really great games and has stretches where it's been fantastic offensively. But what he's not getting a lot of is the credit for how he is defending opponents, perimeter guys. He is such a disruptor on defense and it's not just the way he guards um, one-on-one, but it's also to the ability to move his feet. And this being only his second season and being able to figure it out with the coaching staff and them coaching him on getting his angles, moving his feet, and staying perpendicular and using that rule of, he uses the rule of verticality, probably one of the best from a perimeter position when a guy's trying to back him down and he just straight up good to go and he disrupts the shot and impacts the shot that way. In my opinion, Denny Avdia does a lot of things that will never show up on a box score, but the coaching staff and his teammates know that he's doing it and impacting the game. So you think of that type of depth that this team has, and it's something that they haven't necessarily had in the past couple of years. And then, oh, but wait, you have Thomas Bryant and Rui Hachimura sitting in in the wings just waiting to come back. Avdia came out, I he reminded me a lot of Joe Ingles in the mm-hmm. way that, that he could facilitate in, in the Israeli league and, and playing with Tel Aviv. And then if you add Joe Ingles plus lateral quickness, that's an awesome NBA player. No, I, I agree with you. His, his ability that he's been able to improve has been, in my opinion, really impressive over his first season dealing with, you know, the injury too, because that's what a lot of people I think are forgetting is he's coming off of missing the last chunk of the season because of an injury. And the fact that he's been able to sit and watch the game because the NBA game, as you know, JP, much different from, you know, the European game and the way that it's played. So when you have a guy who is young can sit with coaches and watch the game and see how it's developing while, you know, getting ready from an injury and rehabbing from an injury and recovering and then have this type of impact the next season, I think is very impressive. And it's not talked about enough. I mean, it's talked about within the DC area and DC media, but I don't think it's talked about enough in the NBA media, if you will. So I think that's one thing that in one area that he needs to get a little bit more credit and respect for, but I would agree with you kind of in the sense of like, he plays similar to Joe Ingles, but with a little bit more athleticism and the ability to go laterally quicker than what Joe can do. So, and really impressive. And then you add in a guy like Davis Bertans, who, you know, obviously dealing with that ankle injury injury um the beginning of November is now back and is struggling a little bit offensively but he's a guy that we've seen him struggle before but can figure out how to get out of those struggles what is the Eastern Conference view the Wizards view of what the Jazz are doing right now third in the West you know the West is so interesting because it's always been competitive 
And I think it's always going to be competitive. And you look at this jazz team and it's so funny because I was thinking about this as, you know, getting the lead up to this matchup and as disappointing as last season was and in the postseason for the jazz, obviously losing, um, I believe they're what three, one against Denver and then lost that series. I think going through that and injuries obviously affecting it and now coming back, being a little bit healthy, more healthy, excuse me, than what they were in the postseason. I think they've now got what it takes to figure out how to adjust, if you will, in that situation so that, you know, you can have that three, one lead. Maybe they get that, you know, they get that win and it goes three, two, but then that next game, they fi- they finish the, the series and they're on rather than Denver. So I think just going through that, as frustrating and disappointing as it can be uh, for players and fans alike, I think it was necessary in order to be prepared for this season. Because, I mean, you're, you're sitting third right now, but you could easily, with the West, drop to six or drop to the play-in situation. Like, that's how, how much parity there is in the West right now. And that's what I think I love so much about the NBA this season. And even, you know, the last couple of seasons is the parody is starting to even out a little bit more where you, you have those top two teams in each division, but then the rest of each, each conference is, is a dog fight. And you have a game, a half a game, two games that are differentiating the rest of the conference. And you're looking at it like, okay, this is going to get spicy and we're not even halfway through the season yet. And I think that's probably the most exciting thing about the jazz being in third right now is every single game is almost like it's a game seven. Like it's a must win situation, whether you're playing the worst team in the conference or in the league or the best team, like you have to bring your best game on a nightly basis. Now, let me tell you about first colony mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out at First Colony Mortgage. What's the best case scenario for the Wizards this year when it comes to playing against those top teams in the conference? I think knowing what they went through last season with, you know, slipping in and getting in the play-in situation and then getting in to the series situation, I think, you know, the next improvement for them is trying to finish within the top five. If they can finish top five, I think it's a successful season. If they can finish top four, that's even better because it gives them a little bit more breathing room. It gives them the thought that they have a better chance of getting home court advantage in some situations, depending who they match up against, um, because we know that they've been very successful at home versus on the road. Um, So you look at like the top four or top five and one night it could be the way we see with as we're recording right now. That could be the standings today, but by, you know, midnight tonight, it could be completely different. So that's what I think is so exciting about the East is that you could have your, you have your one through eight. And then by, by 1am, that one through eight might look so much different 
And like the jockeying for position, I think in the East is literally a game by game basis that, like I was saying about the West, you have to be on your game every single night because you know there's seven teams, you know, chomping at your heels trying to get that half game in front of you to then get a full game in front of you, especially too when you think of the fact that we're seeing the schedule shake out with these like mini series, if you will, which I really love. I absolutely love it. They're even doing the same thing within the G League is doing these mini series to try and eliminate as much travel as possible yep. to try and protect the players, which I appreciate that they're thinking of health and safety as well too. But these mini series that you get with teams is so much fun because it gives you a glimpse of, okay, yes, it's only two games, but what if we see this team in the playoffs in a seven game series? Like I love that I get two of these and now I want five more based on that. So I think best case scenario for the wizards is to try try and finish in that top five. If they can get that top four, I think it puts them in a really great position to make some noise come playoff time and really kind of be disruptors because typically you see like that four through eight or five through eight, excuse me, teams be the disruptors in, in playoff situations. But I love when a one through four can be a disruptor, especially when they're not expected to be in a one through four situation in the playoffs standings come playoff time when those series kick off the jazz have been in that situation in the west many a time uh, when they did it against the clippers a couple of years back when they, right. joe johnson beats them at the end the top the bucks they've dealt through injuries what's impressed you about milwaukee this year i think what you just said jp is the fact that they've been able to maintain their level of play for the most part while dealing through injuries like that's the crazy thing, because you look at this team a few years ago and the biggest knock on them was, well, Giannis and them can't get it done come playoff time. They can get it done in the regular season, but they can't get it done come playoff time. What's the next step? And then we saw the next step two years ago. And then we saw the next step last season. And they just, they withstood every punch that was taken at, that was thrown at them, every haymaker that any team tried to throw. And to, sh to, to look at that series with Phoenix in the finals was, I think absolutely insane because Phoenix gave them everything they could. And Milwaukee said, bet you throw a haymaker, we're throwing two. Like that's the crazy thing. And now you're seeing, they're not just defending their championship run, but they're saying the East is going through us and we're not going to make it easy right now. Like that's the scary thing is they could easily go back to back Eastern conference champions, in my opinion, like they have the ability and they're set up right now, pending, obviously, you know, health going the rest of the stretch of the season. And they get out of this kind of injury bug that they're dealing with, but if they can get healthy and get, you know, some, some runs together and some stretches together, they're very scary. It yeah. like, like I said, we could arguably be seeing the Eastern conference have to go through Milwaukee again. And it would not at all surprise me if they're sitting atop the Eastern conference when it comes NBA finals time. 11 and one with a healthy Giannis, Chris Middleton and Drew holiday this year. I don't know. That'd be a pretty good team. If, if they had them all healthy together, that's, they're that's not just a guess. Yeah. Just a guess. Not, not bad. The nets centimeters away from advancing in that matchup last season how have you seen them this year I think as everybody has it's it's been it's been a roller coaster it's been a struggle for them and you know I, I everyone talks about Katie playing all these minutes 
But the fact that he's playing all these minutes and, you know, we, we kind of know he has to, because what else do they have? Like James Harden's been up and down, obviously the emphasis with the, uh, offensive fouls being drawn has clearly affected the way he plays the game. Um, and anybody who tells you it hasn't affected him, they're clearly not watching the same NBA that you and I are watching because you look at the amount of times he's not going to the free throw line anymore. Like that's, that should be the biggest tell of how the emphasis on officiating and, and fouls being called has affected James Harden's game is the lack of the times he's going to the free throw line compared to what we've seen in what the last decade. Um, and then obviously like, I think they've weathered the storm of this Kyrie Irving situation and they've kind of just put it out of, they've, it's almost like they put it in their minds that he doesn't exist anymore on the team if you will, as bad as that sounds, that's kind of how they're treating it. And I think that's the right way they have to do it. Similar to Philly with Ben Simmons is you kind of just have to pretend he's not on the team anymore. He's not on the roster. You've gotten rid of him. He doesn't exist because you know, you don't know if you're ever going to get him back and if he's going to play this season. So you have to treat it as if he's not going to play this season. And what Kevin has been able to do in this, you know, roller coaster of a season start is play like Kevin Durant. Like he's raised his game, if you will, but he still needs the rest of them to rise with him. And it's going to be tough because if he continues to play, you know, 35 plus minutes a game, especially when you think of the fact he's not long removed from an Achilles injury, it's going to take a toll on a person's body. I don't care what anybody says. I understand that these teams have millions of dollars into health and recovery and, and all that jazz and, and um, no pun intended, <laughs> and, and all of the, you know, recovery for players, but that's a lot of mileage on one guy's body, like a lot of mileage. So it's going to be tough. Um, but at the same time, knowing that they have arguably one of the best scorers that this game has ever seen in Kevin Durant and still have James Harden, who's trying to figure out, you know, how to be James Harden within this new way of officiating there's, they can still be scary because we've seen them have, you know, these stretches as of recently where it's like, oh, okay, this is what we expected. But I think the biggest thing for them is the others, the bench, the rest of the guys not named James Harden and Kevin Durant. They need to consistently step up on a nightly basis in order to alleviate some of the responsibility on Kevin Durant and James Harden. That Joe Harris injury, it's going to impact them over the next couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, especially when, when they start to play more of these teams. The Bulls, they vaulted into this conversation, and the Jazz have seen it firsthand, having to travel to Chicago and getting beat. I love their hierarchy. Do you think it's real? Can it translate towards the end of the year? I think it can. Obviously, I mean, obviously right now with this COVID bug, that's kind of just wiping yeah. them out. It sucks because they were on such a great trajectory and they were so fun to watch. Like how great is it? The fact that you haven't seen this, this excitement of Chicago bulls basketball essentially since Derek Rose, like that's yep. really the last time that the bulls had this consistent level of excitement around them, not just on a game by game basis, but on a consistent basis. And I think just the way that DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine had figured out how to play off of each other to where both of the way the styles of basketball that they play individually, they're figuring out that they can actually make them work together and still 
know that each of them is going to get theirs. They're still, each of them are still going to eat every single night. And then you add in a playmaker like Lonzo Ball, who is just, you know, phenomenal when it comes to his basketball IQ and the way he sees the floor. And you add that into the mix. And now you have this little trio. And then you have Vooch, who is such a great player in the way that his style works with this type of system. Again, going back to what I was saying about Kuz, he's now in a system that I think works really well to where his style of play, this is where he can thrive. Um, you add in an athletic player like Derek Jones Jr. Uh, it's really, I'm, I'm so disappointed that the, the, the COVID bug has got them as much as it has because what we were seeing from them, you know, we were, we were on pace to see something great from them. And it sucks that it's hit them this hard but the fact that they're also still figuring it out and playing through it with their young guys who are like, okay, those guys are out. We got to step up. Like they're taking on this, this challenge and saying like, we got this, we we've got us right now. Y'all get better. Like we've got us. So I think, I don't think it's completely out of the realm that this isn't for real. If they can get as many of those guys back as soon as possible, that they don't completely go into a tailspin. You get what I'm saying? Um, that I think that they can figure this out and weather the storm and then ramp it back up. Fully healthy. I just love their hierarchy with uh, Damar as as the main playmaker down the stretch. Levine can score and Vooch is the guy who's who's sacrificing and it's going for the betterment of the team. I love that somebody is is buying into that team concept so much that you can tell this is an all-star caliber player, but he's pulling it back so that everybody else can eat. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of similar to what Steph Curry did when Kevin Durant joined the Warriors. Like he was the one who made the decision that he was going to step back. And yet he's still going to break the all time three point record, even though he did that for a couple of years. It's similar to what um, we saw in a year off, a year off too. Yeah. (laughs) That's also true. Um, It's similar to like what D Wade did with LeBron coming to the Heatles with Chris Bosch. D Wade made the decision that he was going to take a step back and said, young fella, this is your team. Let's figure it out. So when you have players who can recognize, like, I've got guys around me who can really play the game, I can take a step back and still get mine because I know that in situations they need me. Yep. And I think that's why it makes it easy for, for those types of players to take that step back and allow guys to really flourish. Let's wrap up the bouncing around the Eastern Conference with one team that impressed this week, beating the Bucks on Wednesday, the Heat. Kyle Lowry really changed the fortunes for this team so much? I mean, it's hard not to believe that he's changed it because you look at what he did with his time in Toronto. He's arguably the greatest Raptor of all time. And DeMar is a close second. And then, you know, Vince Carter and Chris Bosh. Those are probably my top four all-time Raptors. So it's no surprise that you move him to the Heat. I think he would have probably had this impact if he had gone to Philadelphia too. Um, Cause I know that Philly was in the running to try and try and snag him as a free agent, but it's similar to what Spencer Dinwiddie is doing for Bradley Beal in Washington. I think this is what he's doing for Jimmy Butler in Miami. The ball is no longer heavily in the hands of Jimmy Butler. Like we had seen again, similar situation being a playmaker, not for not only for himself, but also for guys like Robinson hero um, bam, like he had the ball in his hand so much. And I think it just, it wore him down because Jimmy, to me, in my opinion, I think he's better when he plays off the ball 
than he does when he's got the ball in his hands, you know, 70 plus percent of the time. So I think Lowry moving to Miami has actually given Jimmy the ability to take a breath, just be like, I can play the way I played before getting to Miami. And I don't have to be the number one playmaker guy. He can still be the number one guy, but he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands. So I just think that the effect, the, the moment you take a team that doesn't have that true, true point guard nightly, and don't get me wrong, Goran Dragic was, it is still a great point guard. I just don't think that the way he plays and the way Butler plays, it didn't really mesh well, if you will. Um, whereas the way Lowry plays, it's almost like Lowry as a point guard, he's a chameleon. He adapts to the guys around him rather than necessarily them having to adapt to him. And I think that's allowed guys to thrive even more because like Lowry can get his, but his first thought is let me, let, let me get you yours. I'm going to do what I have to do to get you yours so that I can get mine later. And I think that's where Jimmy Butler thrives. That's such a good point, the lessening the load, uh, because I think of the meme of Jimmy Butler so, so tired in the bubble playoffs where he's just looking at the ground. <laughs> that is exactly what Kyle Lowry needs to do for a team, and he's doing it so far. If you had to handicap it, who would be your favorite right now, December 10th, in the Eastern Conference? It's, it's really hard to go against Milwaukee. You know, mm-hmm. as as easy of a pick as that is. At the same time, it's it's hard to go against them. Just the way that they've played this season, and you know, to your previous point, weathering the storm of these injuries, and obviously them being what you said, eleven and one, when all three in Holiday, Middleton, and Giannis are healthy, it's hard to go against them. Um, but my my sleeper in the East, which isn't necessarily a true true sleeper, but just for what I was saying earlier of like making some noise and kind of disrupting, I think is the wizards and the bulls, even though the bulls right now are sitting like top three, top two kind of in the, in the East as, as we're talking. Cause again, like I said, like that could probably change by 1am tonight <laughs> or by the time yep. um, the jazz wizards tips off Saturday. I, I think that they're going to have to weather this storm of um, health and safety protocols. And that might affect, where they're sitting in the standings, but I think that they could be a sleeper in the East along with Washington. And I'm not saying that as like a Homer um, being in DC and working in DC. I just, I love sleeper teams and, and sneaky teams. And I just think that you, if you get the right matchup, you can completely disrupt what people want or what people think will happen in the Eastern conference. Well, and as crushing as last year's postseason experience was for Washington, having postseason experience helps. It just, yep. it absolutely does. And being able to get through the play and have a first round matchup, that has to help when it comes to it actually being an offseason after 82 games. Without question. Without question. Megan McPeak, Wizards analyst on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com, looking around the Eastern Conference. Megan, thank you so much for taking the time. JP, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.